Father, we ask to that end that by your Spirit you may work within our assembly and accomplish all the good that you desire as we consider this text together, knowing that it is a call to us to act, to think, to rightly apply for the good and the health of the assembly that we are in together, the family of God that we participate in together. We pray in behalf of those who know not Christ that you would shine the light of the gospel to them, that even today would be a day of salvation. We pray, Father, for us as believers. May you bring conviction, encouragement, and strengthen us through this time together in the Word. Thank you for the songs that we've sung in spirit and in truth, with our minds and our understanding of what you have revealed, and also with our spirit rejoicing with warm affections toward all that you have done to redeem us in Christ. May we now attend your counsel. Through Christ's name we pray. Amen. The local church is a construction zone. The local church is designed by the risen Christ to build up to completion God's people as God's house. In a physical sense, our relocation to this site involved deconstruction and then construction. Some of us will remember those days of deconstructing the building that was on the foundation that's now our west wing. We took it apart, and that deconstruction gave way to demolition as we tore the building down, and then came ultimately construction, the building up after the demolition of this site, for which we thank God and uh, remember those days of construction, the building being brought to completion, starting at the ground level and working its way up to completion. Well, in a spiritual sense, the local church is designed by Christ as a construction site, Sadly, there are some local churches where it's a deconstruction site, a demolition site of the faith of the members by abandoning the truth of God's word. The physical buildings may stand in regal splendor, but Christ has left the building. He is nowhere to be seen. It becomes simply a church in name, abandoning God's truth. There are other local churches that remain faithful theologically to some degree, but wrong priorities and disunity with one another create an environment that's destructive, not as constructive as it should be. Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, each one of us has a distinct responsibility to assure that this local church is a God-honoring construction zone. It falls to each of us, working together as Christ's body, to create an environment in which members are being built up to completion, that we are maturing in Christ, and that the environment of this assembly enables that and encourages that. This, re- this goal obviously requires that we love one another, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, as we considered last week. We're called to invest spiritual energies in a way that puts others first and serves their highest good. 
We are, in effect, to pull one another along, to shoulder one another's weight, rejecting self-promotion and selfish ambition in order to construct, to build up the assembly. Paul makes that point in chapter 12, describing the church as a body, each member doing its part, no, each member needed, and the church is needed by each member. In chapter 13, again, the self-sacrificing love that will then fuel that body relationship. Now in chapter 14, he narrows to get really specific, down to the grit of this conversation. The specific application of these principles will help the Corinthian church to become the right type of construction zone. And it will help us as we consider our stewardship of Eden's spiritual environment in a very different world. But we visit here again, as we think of that different world, a time in church history before written revelation of the New Testament was complete. It was a time when many believers were endowed with the spiritual gift of speaking a language they could not themselves understand. The Corinthian church loved this gift. They saw it as the preeminent gift. They couldn't wait to display it in the assembly. They were so anxious to do so that their gatherings had become chaotic. Flaunting their superiority by speaking out in church at the first impulse of the Spirit's provision of this capacity. Paul is going to rock their world here in chapter 14. And he has prepared them with the lengthy conversation of chapter 12 and the call to love in chapter 13. But now he gets down to the specifics. And here we find, though in a different era, with a different batch of challenges, we find his counsel equipping us to become an edifying local church. It's a lengthy passage, but let's work through it as we consider what we find. And the first principle that is evident to us is we must prioritize spiritual ministry that builds up the church, very simply. This is his point to them in the first five verses. Verse 1, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Pursue love. This is the supreme virtue in our relationships together as a church family. Nothing else matters if we don't have love. This is not a suggestion, notice, nor is it a call to find the people who are like you and that like you. It is a command that we learn to relate to one another with selfless, servant-hearted focus. Pursue love. Go after it in your relationships with one another and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Again, the original text, the spirituals, which means nothing like what that word means in our culture. The spirituals is, is that, that connection to the Holy Spirit as he supplies his grace in your midst to build up the assembly. Earnestly desire them, these capacities to minister to Christ's church. We should long to be able to build up the church. So long for that. Earnestly desire it. Particularly, I would say, in the first century, some of these gifts were miraculous in nature. Some involving direct revelation from God to the church. For instance, tongues. 
the miraculous capacity to speak a decipherable language that the one who is speaking it doesn't understand. Seek these gifts, he says. Chapter 12, verse 31, remember that statement there. Earnestly desire the higher gifts. What Paul's done here is set them up. Earnestly desire the higher gifts, he says in 1231. They know what that is. That's tongues. And then he comes back to it here again and says, desire the spirituals. Desire those spiritual gifts. And undoubtedly, they're saying, yeah, that's tongues. And now he's going to rock their world. Stunning his readers, verse 1, when he says, especially that you may prophesy. Prophecy was also a revelatory gift, a message received from God for the church. How did someone know that they had a word of prophecy? We don't know. What was the sort of content of these messages? We, we don't know. We have a few instances of prophecy in the uh, New Testament, but really not in the setting of a local church. We don't really know what that looked like. But the point is that unlike tongues, prophecy has revealed to the individual, in his, has been revealed in his or her own language, in the language of the people of the assembly. And so prophecy is a talking in the known tongue, a message from God. So Paul shocks the church by encouraging them to seek the higher gift of prophecy. Now, according to 20 or chapter 12, 29 to 30, not everyone would receive this spiritual endowment. That's not what he's indicating. But no one was excluded from the possibility of that. So it was right for them to pray to receive it. Okay, Paul, why would you say this? Why prophecy? Verse 2. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Paul has in mind someone here speaking in a language that no one present understands and that no one present is miraculously able to interpret. Now, Many charismatic theologians would insist that Paul speaks here of an angelic tongue that no human can understand apart from divine revelation. So no matter who spoke this tongue, no one could possibly understand it ever unless God revealed the truth. But I I really see no reason to think of tongues as anything different than what we witness in the book of Acts. Human languages unknown to the speaker. We can differ on that. But the speakers were speaking divine mysteries in their spirits as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. But here's the key in verse 2. No one understands. No one understands. Now, by way of contrast, verse 3, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, their encouragement, and their consolation. Speaking a word from God builds up the church. It is constructive, directly contributing to maturity and completion. Prophecy also encourages and consoles the church, helping people persevere through the trials of life. It's a direct, one-on-one, person-to-person in language, conversation that is constructive. Verse 4, 
The one who speaks in a tongue, by contrast, builds up himself. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. In light of chapter 13, which one is superior then? Paul will stress repeatedly that building up the local church is our collective mission, but building up oneself in the assembly stands at cross purposes with that mission. Paul is not dismissing tongues. He is not devaluing tongues as a sign gift in their assemblies. This was indeed the work of the Holy Spirit. No one else. No one could discount that. But when one considers the role of love, of selfless service to the building of the body, well, prophecy simply serves better than speaking in a language that no one understands. It just does. Think of this. He's helping us calibrate how to think. This is from God. This capacity to speak this tongue is from Him. Yet... In this setting, in this place, it doesn't build up the church. It just builds up oneself. Verse 5, now I want you all to speak in tongues. Let me get this straight. But even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. See the theme, don't we? To build it up. Some interpreters claim that builds up himself in verse 4 is sarcasm, that Paul is condemning this, that he's saying this is a negative, that you're built up, uh, that you are building yourself up. I don't think that interpretation fits very well with I want you all to speak in tongues. If he's being negative and sarcastic about building oneself up, why would he then say I want you all to speak in tongues? Now, they won't, of course. He's understanding that, chapter 12, verses 29 and 30. That's not the point. What he's trying to make very clear is this. I'm not against speaking in tongues if the Holy Spirit indeed gives the ability to speak a language that you don't know. If it's truly from God that he's given this capacity, I'm not opposed to that at all. But prophecy is superior because it builds up the faith of the whole church. You are built up as you sense the Spirit of God working in this capacity in your life. But in the assembly, it's you and you alone. Now, there's a qualifier here, isn't there? If there's an interpreter, have at it. I mean, an interpreted tongue takes twice as long as prophecy, but outside of that, it's the same thing. You get the language spoken that nobody understands, and then the miraculous interpretation of that tongue that no one understands, and the church can be edified. So again, it takes twice as long. You've got to have translation, but that's okay. As long as the church can be built up, as long as that is a decipherable language that they are re- in which they're receiving this message. Then the shocker. I think it just had to stun them here in verse 5. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. They would have said exactly the opposite. I mean, you just you get a word from God, but you've got to say it in your language. Look what I've got. I got this word from God that nobody understands. This is really special. I'm superior. I'm greater than you. 
seems to be something of the spirit that was there. Now, this one is not greater personally or inherently, but more, he's more vital. She is more vital to the building up of the church. That's the point. Now, we live in a very different time with different challenges, but the principle that filters down to our own day is that we must learn as a church to prioritize the good of others as we minister to one another. This is the priority. We walk within the environment of the congregation to build up others. We are a blessing to Christ's church only when we actually help it. When we keep it moving in the right direction. When we serve its ultimate good. When we build up others in maturity and the like. On occasion, people have filtered in and through our church through the years, demanding that they do this or that in a way that satisfies their itch but would help no one else. That's a kind of thing I think that we can see as off track in light of this passage. The question rather that we should be saying is not, am I able to scratch my itch in this church? Will they let me? But rather, what can I do to encourage, to comfort, to build up others in the assembly? This is the very orientation of love. How will God use me by his grace to minister to others such that their faith is encouraged and strengthened? This is the question. And now, secondly, through verse 19, Paul will turn to the negative side of the matter at hand, just as obvious as can be in in an outline form, but we need to prioritize spiritual ministry that builds up the church, and the other side of it, secondly, is that we must limit spiritual ministry that struggles to build up the church. It, it, It may have some capacity to strengthen the assembly, but if it struggles there, as is the case with tongues in the assembly... We need to limit such spiritual ministry. This is his burden in verses 6 through 19. Verse 6. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Whatever he means exactly by these gifts of revelation, knowledge, prophecy, and teaching, they were superior to tongues because they were understood. Speaking in tongues remained a mystery. It only edified the speaker. And Paul illustrates now in verse 7. If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? Here's the application. So with yourselves. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. Hand-carved wooden flutes, harps, closer to what we would think of as a guitar, and battle trumpets closer to what we might think is a valveless bugle, 
were widely used in that society, and they communicated something. But if the sound was indistinct, if it was uncertain, if it was indecipherable, you couldn't tell what song was being played. I've, I've been in a couple bands like that <laughs> in junior high. Like, I, I think I know what this tune is, but I'm not really sure right now. He says, that's not going to do any good, is it? People aren't going to tap their feet to the song they like, whatever it is. Uh, they can't quite make it out. And the, imagine on the battlefield, this way of, their way of communication was to sound this trumpet, retreat, charge, hold your ground, outflank to the left, outflank to the right. All these different messages were communicated by this bugle. But if it was confusing, nobody'd know what to do. So with yourselves. If you come and you speak in a tongue in the assembly that no one understands, no one's helped. You may build up yourself in some sense with that experience, but you're not helping anyone. And I stress again, it's so important as we think about how he's reasoning through this, these miraculous tongues were a gift from God. They were divinely supplied. And yet he says they may not have any use in the assembly. Verse 10, there are doubtless many different languages in the world and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner, literally a barbarian to the speaker and the speaker a barbarian to me. That had to be shocking language as well. I believe these verses support the interpretation that Paul has recognizable human languages in view. Otherwise, why illustrate this way with real languages? Charismatic theologians would disagree, noting that Paul uses language here as a a different Greek word than tongues. I would just take that as variety, but some would say, no, there's something really distinct that he's speaking of here. But either way, the point is quite clear uninterpreted tongues provide no benefit to the assembly. That's just crystal clear. You talk like a a barbarian that no one can understand when you're in the assembly speaking that way. Verse 12. So with yourselves, since you are eager For manifestations of the Spirit, that's not negative, but since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Do what will construct and encourage and lift up. This is the central theme, verse 12. A significant weakness, I think, of the Pentecostal charismatic world as we know it is the emphasis on individual experience. The focus falls on supposedly feeling the presence of the Spirit in revelatory experiences that send the individual home feeling blessed and strengthened from the assembly. But with some consistency, the emphasis falls away from building up the church's maturity. That's not really what is ultimately considered as a good gathering. How I feel about today's worship service is not as valid a question as how were my brothers and sisters edified, encouraged, and comforted. 
I need to be thinking about the assembly. Now, a word later on genuine affections, which he will discuss in this passage. But clearly, he orients them to think, not what is your experience in the gathering, but how have you contributed to its health and maturity and strength. That's the orientation. Verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. That's quite logical. So that others are edified is the point. Verse 14, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Now, again, charismatic theologians cite this verse as evidence that tongues are designed for private devotional use in prayer. Paul wouldn't say this if that's not what their purpose is, to be edified privately and personally. Yes, Paul, and let's note, Paul does speak here of praying in a tongue, but we can't miss the fact that he also speaks of singing in a tongue. And he also speaks, of course, of speaking in tongues. So they're all there. I don't think we should overread verse 14 that way. But first, I think there's a danger in drawing too fine a list of conclusions from this single passage, which is more descriptive than it is prescriptive. This is not a passage, here's how you speak in tongues. This is a passage which is descriptive of what was taking place. But again, praying in tongues was certainly a case, as was singing and as was speaking. Second, we must recognize that New Testament sanctification stresses always what we know, what we believe, and what we trust. Think of the New Testament as a corpus. The emphasis clearly falls on these ideas. To build a grand case for spiritual experience that bypasses the mind from this text, I think is very risky. Religious affections are utterly vital. We pray in the Spirit. And Paul will stress that here momentarily. But experiential feelings disconnected from deep thoughts about what God has revealed are not the biblical pattern. We are sanctified by the truth Jesus taught us. He said to, in, his, in the Great Commission, to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So we are to seek and experience strong and warm affections for Christ. And those who prayed in a tongue or sang in a tongue or spoke in a tongue in that setting certainly were moved in that way. But far from placing religious feelings over the edification of the mind, Paul now says To rightly balance, verse 15, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. That is is what I will choose. Not just the spirit, but the mind as well. To be engaged in thinking the truth of God. Praying, singing in the Spirit indicates prayer and singing that is accompanied with deep and abiding affections for the Lord. More than the brain is moved when we rightly read the Scriptures, when we rightly sing together in the assembly. 
More than just the mind is moved, the heart is moved, the spirit is moved. Our worship services are not intellectual endeavors alone. And I would just say, if your heart is not filled with joy, with conviction, with warm feelings of love for God when you sing, when you pray in assembly, in assembly something's wrong. And I hope you join me. I, at times, am praying prayers of confession while we sing. Lord, my heart's not warm. It's cold. I'm not sensing it. I'm not sensing your presence. I'm not walking in warmth with you in spirit. And to make that right, even as we sing, and to watch God then so often answer that prayer and warm the heart and bring us into worship in spirit and in truth. This is what Paul's aiming at. This is what he longs for that the rich words of the songs, that the rich words of Scripture would warm the heart with pure and vibrant affections for the Lord. But Paul chooses to engage the mind, to think God's thoughts, to learn His promises, to understand His commands. And the whole bent of the New Testament is that it is, is, that it is through those written words that we know the mind of God and come to know Christ. So I will sing, I will, or I will pray with my spirit, but with my mind as well, and sing with my spirit, but my mind as well. Verse 16, otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough as you're praying in this tongue, but the other person is not being built up, the outsider. So you're praying in tongues. You sense your, in your spirit that your prayer, that your words are actually a prayer of thanksgiving to God, but no one else has that sense. To others, you're just talking like an, a barbarian. And so the outsider cannot say amen. The outsider, probably an inquirer, probably somebody not a member of the church, but considering Christian truth. Amen, this is a word of agreement. Yes, truly, let it be so. We say amen because we are joining with that petition and saying, let it, yes, this is the truth. So, but no one can honestly say that because they don't understand what you're saying. So let's think of four points here. Your spirit, score, one. Your mind, zero. The other person listening to you, their mind, zero. They don't understand what you're saying. Their spirit, zero. You've built yourself up. You've accomplished nothing else. Your mind is empty of this message. And with others, both mind and spirit are empty. So what is the value of this? The local church is a spiritual construction zone, and you are building almost nothing when you speak out this way in the assembly. Now at this point, I think again, Paul stuns the Corinthians in verse 18 when he says, now, think of this, think of this, this heading, like you just don't think he's going here in verse 18. He now says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. I think they had to be like, what? This was probably a source of contention between them that they were saying, look at this superior gift, and Paul never used it in the assembly. 
as we reconstruct that history, they were very unimpressed with Paul. He did not tap the spirit realm as they did and demonstrate this closeness to God. And so they had some real questions about him as an apostle. They took pride in their tongue speaking, but look down on Paul. He's inferior in some way. But Paul shocks them here. I speak in tongues more than all of you. This, I think, is the strongest argument for the use of tongues in private devotion. There's no stronger argument than verse 18. Put it together this way. Since Paul was very hesitant to use tongues in the assembly, and since he spoke in many tongues, we must ask, where did he speak them? It could be in evangelism. But we don't have any evidence of that in the book of Acts. It could be in private devotion. Although, again, we really have no evidence of that outside of this passage. And again, I would stress it's not descriptive, but prescriptive. Or the other way around. It's not prescriptive, but descriptive. So we really don't have a whole lot of evidence on this. But back to the point, Paul stresses that he, like them, is similarly endowed by the Spirit, but he does not use that gift in the assembly. It's an amazing thought. Why? Verse 19, because in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Well, there's no question where he stands now, is there? By their very nature, tongues do not build up others in the faith, unless interpreted, but prophecy does. So in the assembly, I will focus on prophecy out of love for others. To chart it, we could put it this way. In tongues, we're speaking to God alone, intelligible to God alone, and building up only the person who is speaking in tongues. Where with prophecy, in the speaking, the intelligibility, and the edification, all of it applies to the whole assembly. Therefore, to me, says Paul, there is no question how we should proceed. The gift of tongues, again, I stress, third time at least here, but it's from God. It was a good gift. Similarly, there may be ministry gifts that you or I have or ministry initiatives that we could pursue that are good in themselves, but not necessarily profitable to the growth of the church, to its upbuilding and its edification. This, again, we see from time to time as people come into the assembly with expertise, and they say, I'm, I'm coming to look to plug in my expertise into your assembly. And on occasion, it's really clear to me that that expertise would take away opportunities from 20 or 30 members of our church and would not be healthy. This person wants to walk in and be the expert when we have 20, 30 people doing that very same work in a organic way that is very healthy and constructive. Now, we don't have a formal long conversation about it <laughs> right at that point, of course, but generally speaking, that person finds a different church to plug into because they have to do their thing, and there's no question asked about what's healthy for the church. We need to learn to calibrate our thoughts differently. 
How can I build up the assembly? We're instructed here then how to think about such ministries. And the key is this. Does it build up this church in this place at this time? That's the question all of us want to be asking in light of this revelation. Thirdly, we must consider the lost in our spiritual ministry to one another as a church. As we use our gifts, as we minister to one another, we want to always have an eye looking out for those who do not know Christ. This is the principle that arises out of verses 20 to 25. In verse 20, he says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, but infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. So he's, he's calling them to maturity. He's calling us to a position of maturity as a church, to think maturely on these matters. I think he kind of, just a quick aside there, be infants in evil. I mean, if you're going to be children, be children in the area of evil, like you don't have good experience with it. But his point is, grow up. Be mature here. Think about others. It's vital that we labor to build one another up in the faith. Think maturely. When I was playing basketball with my sons many moons ago, I I wouldn't use all my capacities. It would have ended the, the, the fun right there, wouldn't it? I have th- four son, three sons, and with me it was four, and we'd have two on two all the time, whether in the basement or outside. I didn't use my full capacities because in the situation, it would not have been beneficial. Now, if we did the same thing today, I'd use all my capacities, and I would fall way behind them. But he says, he's saying, think maturely here. You're a dad of 35, and you got to kid of 10 years old, you don't swat every shot that he takes back in his face and bump him out of the way and put the ball in every single time and beat him 50 to nothing. Grow up. That's what he's saying, that think about your environment, think about your people, think about your church. Let's go to the scriptures, verse 21. In the law, it's written by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, here's this principle from that passage. Tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. Don't take it too far because he's going to go right in the reverse direction here in the verses that come. But just for a moment... He's talking here from, he's drawing here from Isaiah the prophet. And Isaiah, his conversation is wholly different than what Paul is is speaking of here. But Isaiah is saying, you are not listening to the word of the Lord, and what you're going to hear is people speaking in a foreign language. Who's the foreign language speaker? It's the Assyrian soldiers and officials who are going to take you captive, and you're going to be listening to their chatter the whole way back to Assyria. You want to understand a word they're saying. And so in that setting, speaking in tongues that were indecipherable was a judgment. Paul seems then to draw this parable, and it's very challenging to know exactly what he's thinking here, but I think the point is that when unbelievers hear the message of repentance in an unknown tongue, it's a form of judgment. They are hearing the truth, but they can't understand it. It's more judgment than it is blessing. 
You're really hardly any better off than the Israelites back with the Assyrians when you speak as a barbarian and none of them know what you're saying. It's kind of like you have this document. You discover this document. It's unearthed somewhere, and it's really a valuable document because it gives directions to buried treasure. The only problem is it's in a language you don't read. And as you begin to ask others if they read this language, nobody can decipher the language. Well, is it a blessing or a curse? I mean, it's a really valuable document. It shows the way to treasure, but for you, it's almost judgment. It's almost the opposite of a blessing because nobody can decipher where it is, what it's saying. That's in a sense where you're at here. So if, verse 23, therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, he's talking hypothetically, and outsiders or unbelievers enter into the assembly, will they not say you are out of your minds? You get what's happening, but they won't. Ah, do you see it? Do you see the council? There's unbelievers going to walk into your assembly and you need to think about them. You know the Holy Spirit is acting among you. They have no clue. It will seem to them that you are crazy. That's the only message that you will convey. This message was conveyed to me as a child in a very memorable scene. My family was on vacation. We were passing through on a Sunday night back home. And we stopped at a gas station in the inner city of Philadelphia. Next to the gas station was a Pentecostal church. And I am just about certain that building was shaking. I mean, I felt like I could see it shake. There was a cacophony of voices in that auditorium that had to be heard a mile away. And it was wild. I mean, just chaotic and crazy. And I remember as a young kid looking at that and going, those people are crazy. I'd probably go in there today and I'd find brothers and sisters and I'd understand what they're doing. And even though I might disagree with what they're doing, I'd get what they're doing. As a kid, I had no clue. And I thought, this, can we get out of here? You're going to be talking this way in the assembly, chaotically. People apparently talking over one another in these foreign languages. An unbeliever is going to come in among you and say, these people are nuts. That, says Paul, is a problem. That's a problem you've got to fix. There is no place in Christ's kingdom for the church to accommodate the world's expectations. But there is a place for us to be accommodating, to be thoughtful about those who do not know Christ and how we're pointing them to the Lord. So in contrast to confusing unbelievers with uninterpreted tongues, here's the answer, verse 24, but if all prophesy, again, hypothetical, they won't, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all, he's called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. 
So he assumes that unbelievers will visit their services. He assumes that a convicting word of prophecy may lead an unbeliever to repentance. Prophecy is for believers, even those who are becoming believers as they hear the message in the assembly here. This has happened in our services. Not by a revelation from God in prophecy, but God quickening the spirit through the faith in his word, leading to conversion as somebody sits in their seat. I wish it happened every week, but it's happened. And for those here today who do not know Christ as Savior, perhaps even now you're sensing that your sin is a cannonball linked to your ankle and you're being thrown overboard into the sea. The good news that we proclaim as a church, the good news that Scripture shares with us so pervasively is that God is a forgiving God. Not a God who will shove your sin under the mat and pretend it's not there but the kind of forgiveness that pays the price. That takes our sin and Christ bearing that sin pays the penalty satisfying God's wrath. As we trust in that message, as we put ourselves in the hands of Christ and trust that he is indeed risen in victory over death and sin and judgment, We come to saving faith. We come to see a light that we've not seen before. And perhaps even today where you sit, there's a response of heart that reaches for that truth. Come to it. Today is the day of salvation. Paul says to the Corinthians as they think about those outsiders, the outsider, the outcome with that outsider responding to a prophecy is more valuable than expressing your gift in the assembly of tongues. It's just, more, it's, it's just a, a better outcome. So go home, pray to God, hold your tongue in assembly, do only that which ministers to others. Jesus did not say the world will know that you are my followers when you have brilliant religious experiences. He said that the world will see that you are my followers when you have love for one another. When in that assembly there is a sense, this is a construction zone. This is a place where people are being built up to maturity in the faith. It's not a display of the miraculous that saves souls. It's not a display of spiritual experience that allows people to say the Lord is among you. It's the word of God that uncovers the heart and pricks the conscience and enlightens one to salvation. Prioritize that, Paul says. So love one another, even if it means curbing what you find most satisfying. Love one another. So the local church, we learn, is a construction zone designed by the risen Christ to build up to completion God's people as God's house. And that will only happen as we invest ourselves in selfless, loving ministry to one another, not in self-serving pursuit of even religious experiences that in and of themselves are good. 
Do we perceive that this is what the church is? And do we plug ourselves in, not with demands, but plug ourselves in with how may my life be laid down for the good of my brothers and sisters in Jesus? This is the question. Father, we bring it to your feet and realize as a church that we are immature. There's tremendous maturity that we see, but we recognize as well that we have more to grow. The building is not complete. The maturity is not complete. And so we will always be laboring to build up this assembly. And we ask, Lord, that you'd give us that maturity to even lay down rights and freedoms and preferences, to lay down whatever we must by way of ministry initiative or ministry capacity, and to prioritize that which will best build up this assembly. We don't always know what that is. We need your help. We need insight and wisdom. We pray, Father, that you'd grant it, and that we would each one consider carefully, what am I doing to build up the church of Christ? And Lord, may we be an environment where unbelievers come in and say, this is the word of the Lord. This is a place where the truth of God is sounded. And even if there is rejection, that there would be a recognition of conviction, that there would be a recognition of the truth. And Lord, that some would come to lay down their arms and trust you as Lord and Savior. May it ever be clear in this assembly from every sermon that is preached, from every song that is sung, that we are not a collective trying to be better boys and girls. But that we are a family of God rescued from damnation. Rescued from our sin and rebellion against you. And now with hearts aflame with love for you. A love that shows itself in our love for the body of Christ, the people for whom Jesus died. Lord, may that be clear. That we are forgiven sinners. Who are declaring to others where to find forgiveness. And God, may we declare it clearly. Such that there are those coming to know Christ through our personal witness and through our corporate witness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.